Hello, this is Scott Johnston, and today we'll be mapping aerobic deficiency syndrome on the 15-minute matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it invites us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care, our recommendations, and our outcomes. Everything is connected. We are all unique and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with Scott Johnston. Scott has been a longtime coach to a broad range of athletes from Olympians to some of the top alpinists and mountain runners. He's authored two books, Training for the Uphill Athlete and Training for the New Alpinism, that have changed the way athletes train for these unconventional sports. The methods described in these books have their origins in the more conventional endurance sport world. Scott stresses the importance of aerobic capacity and fat adaptation to improve performance in ultra-long-duration events. I will add here that this is certainly out of my comfort zone, but I've learned a lot about human physiology by tapping into these aspects of performance. So this podcast is for you, whether you're an endurance athlete or like me, not. Hi, Scott. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. Hi, Andrea. Nice to meet you over the air. Um, It's a real pleasure to be here. Yeah, you know, we have some fun people in common, including one of my amazing functional nutrition graduates, as well as my boyfriend, Dave, who I've shared is a huge fan of your work. He's read your books, which we'll link in the show notes several times each. And I'm so pleased, like you said, to actually meet you on the air. I'm glad that your boyfriend has read these several times because they weren't meant as you know bedside light reading. <laughs> they're they're more written for people who do want to take kind of a deep dive and really understand this information. And and it often doesn't register perfectly the first time through. I think it is probably his kind of bedtime reading. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I guess I put myself in that same category. Yeah. <laughs> so as I understand it, when we can really talk about this topic, this talk about aerobic deficiency syndrome without talking about an aerobic base. Do I have that right? And can you kind of set the stage for our conversation about aerobic deficiency syndrome? I think so, because I've had to explain this literally a few thousand times. So (laughs) I hope, I I think I'm going to get this right. We mammals are predominantly powered by aerobic metabolism. And we do have the capability for anaerobic metabolism, but it's a less efficient and it's a more costly system for us to use because we've evolved in an oxygen-rich environment. There is some belief that our anaerobic capacity is sort of a, a holdover from our early evolutionary period. But generally, 
you know, we take in oxygen, we use it for metabolism, and that metabolism is what keeps every single cell alive. And in our case, perhaps you know, for people who are exercising and trying to pursue activities, we might want to sort of, I would think we would want to limit our discussion mostly to the muscle cells rather than, you know, some of the other cells in the body. And inside those muscle cells is a tiny little organelle known as a mitochondria. And every cell in the body has mitochondria in it, except for the red blood cells. And the mitochondria's job is to take in that oxygen that you're using and through a, an incredibly complex series of reactions, produce a compound called ATP or adenosine triphosphate that is then used for energy. It's sort of like the mitochondria is sort of the gasoline refinery, and the ATP is the gasoline of the cell. It's what fuels life, actually. ATP is literally the source of life. And we can produce ATP through these both these mechanisms, the anaerobic and the aerobic mechanism. But the anaerobic system uses a completely different metabolic pathway than the aerobic system. I think what causes aerobic deficiency, well, one of the big ones, of course, is just complete inactivity because our bodies don't like to do things they don't need to do. And if we are a couch potato and we're consuming especially a you know, really high carbohydrate diet, especially one that's you know got a high glycemic index, then the body can get most of its energy from that anaerobic system because the fuel source is that carbohydrate. And it'll just default to that because the aerobic system is more, as I said, it's a more complex system. It takes longer to produce the energy. I think the leading cause, certainly what I'm sure you deal with and many of your practitioners in the audience deal with is this aerobic deficiency caused by people being sedentary and just losing the ability. I mean, literally losing the ability not well, not completely, of course, there's always some aerobic activity, but by not being active and not putting some demands on that aerobic metabolic pathway, it begins to sort of detune. Your body will produce fewer of these mitochondria, the enzymes that are in the mitochondria that are responsible for this ATP production, the, the levels drop dramatically once activity is stopped. The other end of the aerobic deficiency syndrome that I deal with primarily in, in my kind of work, which is exclusively dealing with athletes and mountain athletes these days, I do have a background in training Olympians in the sport of cross-country skiing, but all this stuff pertains to all of us who have you know, a moderately high activity level. But what we see, which I didn't actually know existed, this, or I didn't know that this aerobic deficiency system existed until 15 years ago, because I'd only been dealing with pretty high-level athletes who had very well-developed aerobic bases. And then I started dealing with the general public, and people were coming to me, and we would be doing testing. And I would say, where's the aerobic contribution to this ATP? These people, as soon as they would begin to exercise, even much beyond a walk, they would shift almost entirely to this anaerobic or what's called the glycolytic metabolic system that you know, is breaking down these carbohydrates for use for fuel. And I began to get really interested in this, what's causing that to happen? And then I, as I did more and more reading, and then I looked back at testing that I had done when I was a high-level athlete and other athletes I tested, and I began to notice that the best endurance athletes and the best conditioned people have very high aerobic capacity, the ability to produce a lot of that ATP 
through the aerobic metabolism without having to rely prematurely on that anaerobic system. And the anaerobic system then can be sort of saved to where it's really needed when the intensity or the speed picks up because it can produce energy much faster. So the anaerobic system is sort of a supplement to the aerobic system in terms of when the aerobic system can't provide enough energy, then the anaerobic system will kick in and start helping provide that energy. So it's sort of like a backup, like a backup system metabolically for energy production. It's a backup, but it's also extremely well designed to fuel high intensity activities because it can break down these sugars so fast. And so it can produce ATP at a very rapid rate. As you know, there's some metabolites that come along with that glycolytic metabolic activity that are deleterious to high performance as well. What I see you know, as the opposite of the couch potato who does nothing and then deconditions their aerobic system, I see these many, many people today engaging in a lot of high intensity training. So they're doing, you know, circuit training in a gym or spin classes or CrossFit or hit. Exactly. I mean, and these are, you know, this is far better than sitting on the couch. Let me put that out there. I mean, I'm not advocating not doing nothing, but they've been told that this is some sort of either a shortcut to fitness or a, you don't need that high volume of low intensity work to condition the aerobic system, that this type of training will actually do that. And it's metabolically impossible, can't happen. We are not evolved for that. So what happens with people who do a high volume, and we can talk about the relative meaning of, of high. Yeah, it's kind of like the dose makes the poison, right? Exactly. So what, what happens with these folks that are doing a really high volume of fairly high intensity training, and we can talk about what's the border between high and low intensity. And what happens, though, is that once again, that aerobic metabolic pathway becomes deconditioned because it's not really being used very much. And instead, what happens is the glycolytic or the anaerobic metabolic pathway becomes hyperactive because it's it's what you're relying on for this energy in your spin class. And so you begin to develop a very high, what's called an anaerobic capacity, the ability to produce energy anaerobically. And you detune the aerobic system because it's playing second fiddle at this point. It's not really needed. As I said earlier, your body doesn't like to you know, maintain systems that aren't in use. So it will just sort of sideline the aerobic system. And the, uh, the, the outcome of that is what we end up with is even with people who are exercising a lot, you know, maybe they're going to three of these high intensity classes a week or something, is that when I measure them, and I'm sure you've seen this before too, they can't produce much energy aerobically before they have to shift into this anaerobic system. And we can go into kind of why that's not such a good thing, both from a health standpoint and also from you know fitness or performance standpoint, if you'd like. Yeah, let's go there because I think so much of what you're sharing is fascinating. And I think it can be hard when people are quote unquote addicted. I don't like to use that word, but they're very attached to a certain way of working out, not necessarily realizing how it's not physiologically or biochemically serving them either for an activity, but even for healing. As I work with so many people who have autoimmune or chronic conditions, oftentimes people are in a state in their body 
they're trying to achieve something, sometimes even weight loss in ways they were used to achieving it, but their whole physiological system is different now and they actually cause more harm than good. And I know it's a different realm, a different outcome, but what you're saying really ties into some of what I see with a completely different population, not with extreme athletes, not with endurance athletes, not with altitude, but with illness. Uh, yes, and I, I've certainly seen that manifest even with athletes. Where you know, I'm a firm believer that you know fitness has to stand on a foundation of health. Now you can fool it; you can fool your body for a while. We are remarkably adaptable animals, as you know. I mean, there are people that are vegans, and there are people that are carnivores, and it, it's amazing. I don't really quite understand how we how we manage to be so adaptable, but it's incredible. And I think by the same token, we've managed to okay. If you tell your body that it needs to do four CrossFit sessions a week, it's going to do its best to try to figure out how to accommodate that. But in some cases, and especially when I think the dose, as you mentioned, is too high, then we can run into health problems. And I'm not talking about injury and I'm not trying to pick on CrossFit. It's just that it's sort of emblematic of, I think, what we've seen in the last couple of decades where we've all gotten busier. We've all gotten really, you know, crunch time. And when somebody promises you that you can achieve this pinnacle of fitness in three 20 minute sessions a week, you're going to go, okay, I'm going for that because I don't have 12 hours a week to spend training. I believe that it's largely due to, you know, again, I'm not going to pick on CrossFit just a tiny bit here, but CrossFit is an, it's an incredible marketing strategy, but it's not a very good training strategy for either health or especially endurance. But they've marketed it incredibly well, along with some of these other programs. You know, the P, I think it's called P90X. We've seen the Orange Theory. We've seen all of these things that are really targeting people's desire for a quick fix. And unfortunately, especially with the aerobic system, and this is where it's, this is kind of a disappointing thing to have to relay, is that the aerobic metabolic process or the adaptations that take place in your muscle cells to improve aerobic capacity are rather slow to occur. And they respond to a high volume of low intensity training better than they do to high intensity. And that's going to be a problem for people who don't have, you know, many, many hours a week to train. For them, yes, they should have a mix of probably some high intensity training to help improve their strength, but they should try to get in some low intensity activity, even if it's, you know, long walks with a dog or something, just because that aerobic system needs a tune up. And if you think about, you know, I like to use elite athletes as examples because these are people that are trying to optimize performance. And if they're you know, on the same boat as I am, and I think most of the ones I've worked with, with who understand that health has to underlie fitness, they're looking for you know, any advantage they can get. And if Iliad Kipchoge, who now holds the world record in the marathon just under two hours, if he could do what he's doing with three 20-minute workouts a week, you could be sure he'd be doing it. I'm sure he loves to run, but why would he go out and run 120 miles a week if right. he can do it in an hour and a half a week. No successful endurance athlete trains the way these marketing schemes are targeting people with. And I think it's really sort of a silver bullet type of a, a thing we've got going on. People are looking for whether it's a pill they can take or, you know, whatever it is. It just, as you know, I'm sure you deal with it all the time in your area. People that are, they might, they might think of themselves as sort of optimizers or maximizers, and they're looking for these tiny fractional increases. And yet 
they're leaving the double digit gains on the ground that they could be making if they just change their training strategy. So instead of thinking, okay, if I'm going to tune my diet up this way and I'm going to end up with, you know, a half a percent better performance, that would matter to an Olympian where those kind of numbers mean something. But if you're talking about just becoming active and becoming healthier, then certainly diet is important and needs to be part of it. But looking for that little tiny silver bullet that's somehow going to optimize things when you just need to get out there and do the basic work, which is this high volume of low intensity stuff, to see real gains. The sad part for people is it takes time. When I work with people with aerobic deficiency, and I would say, you know, we coach hundreds of athletes and we hear from thousands of them on our website and emails, that sort of thing. I would say that almost 90% of the people that come to us with these aspirations to do events that require a great deal of endurance are aerobically deficient. We use a very simple test to determine the level of aerobic deficiency, and then we can prescribe a training routine that will help them improve that. What is that test? And then I want to talk about what that means, high volume, low intensity, but what kind of testing is that? Well, there's a number of ways you can test for aerobic capacity. And maybe people would consider the gold standard to go into a laboratory and do a gas exchange test, which will show you very clearly what type of fuel is powering your movement or your exercise at that moment. Those tests are hundreds of dollars and not every lab can provide them, you know, if your labs or if you're a health club or whatever that offers these tests, if they call it a max VO2 test, I would shy away from it. You need to look for somebody who can do what's called metabolic efficiency test. That's more interested in what's going on down in the lower intensity heart rate zones than up at the high end, which is what the max, max VO2 is looking for. What's your maximum aerobic power? not your aerobic base or what we would call the aerobic capacity. So the tests that we have gravitated to, which we've now done with literally maybe tens of thousands of folks and found amazingly good correlation with those people who have done both a laboratory gas exchange test and this very simple test that I can talk about. I think it might be simplest if I just refer you to to where it is on the website or something, because it's it's a little lengthy. But essentially, you're going to exercise at an intensity that feels probably for most people very easy. But the exercise intensity, or let's say the, the speed you're running or the speed you're walking, needs to be held constant over a long period of time, roughly an hour. During that period, we'd be recording their heart rate. And we'd ask them to select a beginning heart rate that felt totally sustainable, like they would have no problem sustaining this for an hour. Then they go for an hour, let's say it's 130 heartbeats per minute, and they get steady at 130 and they start going. And over the hour, typically, the heart rate will drift upwards for the same pace. So even if they're walking three miles an hour, the heart rate will begin to drift up. In the olden days, that's how I learned about it back in the 80s before we really had very good technology. Coaches I was working with called it heart rate drift. And it turns out that the heart rate drift, and I, again, I'm, I'm not enough of a physiologist to explain why this is happening, but if it drifts up too far, it's an indication that you are above what we would call the aerobic threshold which the aerobic threshold sort of sets the upper limit of that aerobic capacity, the ability of your aerobic metabolic system to produce enough ATP to keep you going at that speed. And so by looking at the drift in the heart rate, there's not that many people that use this test, but the ones that do sort of arrived at a 5% upward drift 
from the starting point would indicate an aerobic deficit. So if you started at 130 and you ended at 140, you say, okay, 130 is above my aerobic capacity. I would probably want to retest that person, depending on how much drift there was. I would want to retest that person. We'll say, let's do the next test you know, in a few days at 125 and see how much drift we get there. And maybe on the next test where we start at 125 instead of 130, we would end up with a drift of, let's say, you know, five beats instead of 10. And then we'd say, okay, that's definitely under 5%. So now we can say that 125 is probably pretty close to the intensity level where you are primarily relying on your aerobic system to produce this energy. The sad fact, and this is where we kind of butt heads with that high intensity crowd, is the only way, the only way metabolically to move that aerobic capacity up or increase the aerobic threshold, both heart rate and the pace that the person can sustain, is by training below the aerobic threshold. You can nudge it up from below, but you can't drag it up from above. And that, I think, is the biggest misconception for people is if I'm aerobically deficient, I've got a heart rate of 130 at my aerobic threshold, I'm going to train at 145 and drag it up there. Well, it just doesn't work because when you do that, you're suddenly sending this signal because you're above your body's ability to produce most of its energy aerobically, you're sending a very powerful signal to that anaerobic system we've been talking about that it needs to step in because the aerobic system can't produce enough energy to do that. So you're actually detraining that aerobic system while training very effectively the anaerobic system. What's really incredible for me to hear and learn from you is a lot of the same kind of philosophy that I apply to nutrition. Of course, it's better to not be on the couch, but that in essence, there are ways in which we're doing exercise for health all wrong. We're looking at the wrong metabolic or implications at the cellular level with what we think. And I say we generally is the quick fix to get quote unquote healthy by exercising. I totally agree. And I think this has you know, very strong evolutionary roots. Now we're trying to, you know, with these kind of silver bullet quick fix ideas, we're trying to shortcut mother nature. Trying to say, oh, that really doesn't make so much difference. I would love to be able to tell people that two hours of walking a week, that's certainly for many people, two hours of walking a week is a big deal. Certainly with the crowd that I deal with, I would like to be able to tell them that they could shortcut this process and say that, you know, in two hours of low intensity aerobic exercise a week, they could move the needle. But what I've seen over time, you know, with literally thousands of people now, is that less than about six hours of low intensity, we should talk about what that means, a low intensity aerobic activity, less than about six hours, it's going to take about four months to see a substantial, a noticeable move in aerobic capacity or that aerobic threshold numbers, both the heart rate and the pace. Somebody who gets up above about 10 hours, they'll see pretty significant gains in about two weeks. And the Professional or high-level athlete that's training, you know, in the 12 to 16 hours per week of aerobic activity, they're going to see gains, dramatic gains very quickly if they can handle that load, both, you know, with their social constraints and energy constraints, that sort of thing. Yeah. To close us out, Scott, if you can talk about like, what's the recipe for high volume, low intensity, and you also mentioned burst. So I'm wondering if we can really identify what that ideal recipe is. I think we can. I think it's pretty well understood. So we can use that 
thing that I was talking about, this metabol- sort of a metabolic breakpoint, the aerobic threshold, where above the aerobic threshold, more than 50% of the energy being used is coming from the anaerobic or the glycolytic metabolic pathway. And so that's a pretty significant event metabolically for us, and it identifies that intensity level under which one should be training predominantly. And I'll talk about what predominantly might mean. And then we have another really interesting metabolic breakpoint that occurs at a higher intensity, after which you have switched to pretty much 100% glycolytic metabolism, because the aerobic system is not able to supply enough energy fast enough to support this higher intensity work. So we have these two really distinct Although there is some arguing about in science about exactly what they mean and where they are. But in general, and certainly for the population, I think there's there's a little false precision going on there in terms of people trying to identify these things. There's an argument, let's say, in the professional realm over some of these things. But what I've seen, and I think what most people would find useful, is anchoring their intensity of their training to this sort of, we would call it a three-zone system, where you have subaerobics threshold type training that helps elevate the aerobic capacity or the aerobic threshold pace and heart rate. Then you have a mixed period between the aerobic and this upper threshold, which goes by many names. I've chosen to use kind of the most common, which is called the anaerobic threshold, because after that, you've pretty much switched over to anaerobic metabolism. So you've got this first zone, which is that low intensity stuff. You got the middle zone between the aerobic and anaerobic threshold, during which there's a pretty pronounced mixing of these two metabolic systems. And as the intensity increases, eventually you reach the upper threshold, this anaerobic threshold, wherein the aerobic production of energy plummets and you're pretty much on 100%. So by thinking of these intensity zones, it's very simple. You got these three zones and the intensity zone that is marked by that low intensity, you know, the first zone we've been talking about, is one at which we would call it's a conversational pace. You should be able to jog along and have speak in full sentences to your neighbor or maybe talking to yourself or your dog. If you can't, then you are above your aerobic threshold. There's no question about it. So that's a really easy field test that someone can do. Can you talk? Can you speak in full sentences? Can you breathe through your nose? that. Now, obviously, that's some people have nose problems and you know, they can't breathe through their nose very well, but that's another it's a really simple test. But I like the conversational one. Then that middle zone, it's the zone that most people spend most of their time in because it feels like training. They feel like they're getting a workout. This is where Orange Theory, their concentration is in that middle zone. In their case, they would have the low zone as green, the middle zone as orange, and the upper zone as red. And they call it Orange Theory because they train in that orange zone. And I understand the theory behind it. I don't agree that it works the way they think it works, but it does make you feel like you've done a workout when you get done. You think, oh yeah, I really did something. Whereas going out and doing an an hour run at aerobic threshold, some people are going to go, well, that was really easy. It's only easy because that's all the energy their aerobic system can produce. And that's you know, a shocking fact that like the reason it's easy is you don't have enough aerobic capacity to run faster. And I'll make a, I think hopefully a good analogy here, a metaphor sort of to the marathon. So the marathon event, which I think a lot of people will follow is an event that has competed at one's aerobic threshold. Let that soak in just a moment because that means that Iliad Kipchoge, 
who, as I said, has the world record now in the marathon, his aerobic threshold running pace is four and a half minute miles. You can run 26 four and a half minute miles. Now, people who aren't runners might not understand what that means, but you know, breaking the four minute mile in a one mile race is a big deal. And this guy can run 26 430s. But he is in the same metabolic state as that person that's running three and a half hour marathon. The difference is that his aerobic capacity is so high, it can produce so much energy from that basic aerobic system that it can propel him at four and a half minute miles, whereas you and I would be struggling at, you know, 12 minute miles maybe, because that's all the energy, all the aerobic energy we can produce. I love the bio-individuality in this too, that like really it's about finding that base, which is going to be unique for each of us and working into it. Absolutely. I mean, you and I, we're, we can't go out there and start training like Iliad Kipchoge and expect the same I can't even compare myself to you, Scott. Like, well, okay. <laughs> well I, I, I'll speak for myself then. I mean, I, I, it, it, it's one of, I think, one, another kind of fatal flaw in some of the modern sort of marketing strategies, especially for some in sports is let's look at what let's, I'm going to use pick on him again. Let's use, let's look at what Iliad Iliad Kipchoge did in the last six months of his training leading into this breaking the world record. And then let's copy it. And we go, well, wait a minute. His guy has spent 25 years getting to the point where he could do this stuff for you to think that I'm just going to jump into the last six months of what this world champion does and think that I'm going to get results, anything approaching his, it's just a catastrophic mistake. It's a recipe for injury and overtraining and all kinds of health problems. So I think that's another thing I try to steer people away from is it's great to look at what these people do and try to figure out why they're doing it because they are pinnacles of, you know, hopefully health, but in many, most cases, fitness. So we, there's things to, for us to be, to learn there, but trying to completely emulate them, I think is, is a really bad idea. Scott, are there any final points that you wish we as clinicians knew? I mean, I'm going to point to your books and your podcast. It's really fascinating to me. And also as somebody who doesn't work with the physical endurance piece of health, there's synergies and yet like there's part that I just want to dive into more. But what do you wish we all knew that would help us help the everyday person with health and fitness? Well, I think it would come down to the distribution of training intensity in in my world with the endurance athlete. And I, again, parking back and honoring our evolutionary heritage, which is that we came from a long line of very well endurance trained predecessors to us, people who have that ability to go long hours on their feet. In many cases, as you probably are well aware, they might be going days without food because they couldn't catch that animal. And so they got very fat adapted because, and and there's some thought that that's why we are such good fat storers and fat burners, because we evolutionarily, we didn't, we didn't have, you know, a safe weight that we could run over to, to grab sandwich. And so I think honoring that notion that we are designed for a high volume of relatively low intensity exercise. That's really what sustains both health and fitness. And then we have the ability to produce energy anaerobically for short bursts of time, you know, up to a few minutes. And that's a great thing, but it's kind of the frosting on the cake. It's not the cake itself. And that I think is where people go wrong. When we look at the very best endurance athletes in the world across a broad spectrum of sports, everything from rowing to cross-country skiing, to swimming, to biking, to running, all these sports, and we look at what the best athletes do, they tend to do about 90% 
of their training volume at or below that aerobic threshold. That's shocking for many people to hear. Yes, it is. That they think, oh, well, these, like they think the reason Iliad Kipchoge is so fast is he's just, you know, tougher than me. He runs harder than me. No, no, he's, he's not running harder. He's just running a lot faster. Right. Yeah. That's a really interesting point right there. He's not running harder. He's running faster. And because he's done the work to adapt to be able to run faster. And it took him years, of course, to get right. to that point. And you know, and I'm not suggesting that, that everyone wants to, you know, try to run a, a marathon or try to break two hour record or something like that. But I think that if you're looking for both health and performance in your life, this is the sort of balance you need to strike in your exercise activities. And if anything has to give, it should be the high intensity, except for the aging athlete. I think that it, you know, higher intensity training and more strength training. As a 67-year-old, I can say that I've had to do more high intensity and more strength as I age in order to maintain that strength. So I'd say people certainly over 50 probably need to start thinking about that. You know, as you're well aware of the phenomenon of sarcopenia, where you know muscle wasting uh, as we age, and so I think we do need a little extra kick in the slats to keep that going. Thank you so much, Scott. So much fun to learn from you. My mind is like popcorn with all the associations. And I really appreciate your time and can't wait to share your resources with everyone here. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye, Andrea. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15-Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified by email each week about our podcast releases, head on over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, please feel free to get in touch with us. We would love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. 